Open mine eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Love of my life, I am crying I am not dying, I am dancing Dancing along in the madness There is no sadness like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. My guest today on Song of the Soul is Tim Lane. Tim has been teaching in the music department at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire since 1989, flute being his instrument of choice. His taste in music ranges from chorales and classical to Motown and world music. Raised non-religious, he now attends Eau Claire Friends Meeting. Good morning, Tim. Thanks for joining me for Song of the Soul. Well, thanks to you for asking me, and uh, thanks for your show. I've heard it, and I've re- very much enjoyed it, and hope I can contribute. You're a music professor at UW-Eau Claire. How long have you been doing that? I've been at Eau Claire since 1989, so it's nigh 17 years, I guess. And before that, I also taught at Eastern Illinois University for three years. And during that time, I also taught for four summers at the uh, National Music Camp, now known as the Interlochen Arts Camp. You've got quite a history with music there. When did you start connecting with music? What was your first instrument? My first and only instrument is the flute. Always has been. I'm sure it always will be. Let's see. The first time I really heard a flute and was intrigued, I have a couple memories. One was when I was young, my grandfather lived in Puerto Rico. I visited his home and heard him playing the flute as an amateur. He would often play the flute at night with a Music Minus One recording that would play the accompaniment of a piece, and then he got to play the solo. And he always joked that the accompaniment was recorded quite badly. They were always out of time, and they were always out of tune and things like that. So he had a good sense of humor, but he was a, you know, an amateur flutist. 
So I remember hearing that when I was young, and that sort of time in my life and also the exoticism of Puerto Rico and the home that we lived in was beautiful, and so I have good associations with it. I also heard it once at a school assembly. We didn't have a music program in the inner city school that I was attending in Chicago, but some high school musicians came, and I remember the piccolo player standing up and playing some kind of riff on the piccolo, and I thought, well, that's really neat. So I had a chance to start the flute actually when I was in fifth grade, and I did start the flute for about three or four months. My mother took me to the Jane Hull House in Chicago, and I got some inexpensive flute lessons at that time, but I didn't keep it up. And the teacher had said, well, you know, you've got a lot of talent and you should keep it up and everything. But I can't really remember why I drifted away from it at that time. And then our family moved to Cleveland, Ohio. And when I was 13, then I started eighth grade and there was a band program there. And I could either be a singer in the choirs or I could play the flute or some other instrument in the band. And I picked the flute, again, because of my previous experience with it. And my uh, grandfather said he would give me one of his flutes to play on. How does your grandfather connect with Puerto Rico? Is this part of your family history somewhere back there? He was Swiss, actually. My grandparents on my mother's side of the family both immigrated from Switzerland in 1939, right before the war. They were part of the uh, Underground Railroad for helping Jewish people leave Germany. They left because they were concerned about the duplicitous position that the Swiss held, and they were worried about being arrested. So he spoke and learned seven languages, and he learned Spanish at a time, and everyone said, you'll never need to use Spanish. But he was a leather worker, and when he came to the States, he opened up a shop for leather making, and it didn't do well. And he had an opportunity to work for a couple of New York businessmen in a wallet-making company in Puerto Rico. And because he spoke Spanish, he got the job. So you started with flute, seriously, when you were in eighth grade. Where did you continue your musical education? Well, as I said, when I was in eighth grade, our family moved to Cleveland. I needed to pick an instrument. The band director said, of course, it's always a good idea to take music lessons at the same time. There was a Cleveland Music School settlement. This was an organization that also provided lessons to a variety of income levels, and their fees were adjustable. So I went there right away and started studying with a fellow named Cleophus Lyons, who I liked very much. And I started studying with him at the settlement when I was in eighth grade. And after about three months, he said, well, I... I have somebody that you should study with. And I thought, oh, he's mad at me. <laughs> I did something wrong. And so I asked him right out. I said, well, Mr. Lyons, I like studying with you. I did. I Have I offended you? Oh, no, no, no. He chuckled. He laughed. And he said, uh, no, I just think this fellow would be better for you to study with. And I said, well, okay. I, you know, I'm really happy with our lessons, but okay. And he said, well, you have to first, you have to try out for lessons. And I thought that was really odd because I thought, well, geez, someone's coming to you for a music lesson and is ready to pay f for that. Why would you say no? That just shows my naivety. I didn't understand who this fellow was. And actually, Mr. Lyons never really explained it to me until I met him. And that was one Saturday morning I went down to the Cleveland Music Institute, which was a college music school, waited with Mr. Lyons in the student lounge, as it were, saw someone that looked like the main character in The Miracle on 34th Street. 
it was Mr. Sharp, Maurice Sharp. He was the principal flutist in the Cleveland Orchestra. He was coming down, and Mr. Lyon said, well, that's the fellow that you'll play for, and then told me who he was. And Mr. Sharp took me in his studio, and, of course, I was very nervous and played, I thought, kind of badly. And when I was finished, he asked me a number of times, so you've just been playing for three months? And I said, yeah, I played a little bit in fifth grade, but, yeah, just these last three months. And he said, hmm, well, what does your parents do for a living? Well, I just live with my mom, and she works at the post office at nights. Oh, so it would be hard for you to pay my fee. I'll tell you what. You come to my house on Sunday mornings, and I'll give you lessons. I'll charge you half my fee, and if we go over half an hour, you just don't say anything to anybody about it. All right. And so he wrote down his address on a music book, which I still have and cherish, and I would ride my bike to his house every Sunday morning and have a lesson, sometimes for an hour to an hour and a half to two hours. He would greet me uh, at his door, usually in his boxers, because he was just getting up by the time I got there, would let me in and then um, disappear and get dressed, and I would warm up and practice in his study, and then we'd have a lesson. You're doing that at an age where most kids are into being juvenile delinquents or listening to Marvin Gaye. What kind of music were you doing with Maurice Sharp? Well, with Mo, it was all classical training music and lots of scales and arpeggios and theory and etudes and repertoire. But, oh, I listened to popular music as well, especially in Chicago before we moved to Cleveland. I listened to a lot of Motown, and Marvin Gaye was one of my favorite singers. The other thing I didn't finish was I, for college, I went to the Manhattan School of Music for one year and then transferred to the Cleveland Institute of Music, where I finished my undergraduate studies with Maurice Sharp. Then I worked in orchestras for three years, one in Mexico, two in Cleveland. So you've been around, and this is quite a bit of territory to cover for a young boy from Chicago. You mentioned that you were studying with Mo on Sunday mornings. Did you do that instead of going to church? Did you have a religious upbringing? I did not have a religious upbringing, uh, my mother, to the best of my knowledge, still today, professes no belief in uh, any spiritual world or religious point of view. So, yep, my Sunday mornings were free. I think, though, that music is part of the language of the spirit for you. Yeah, very much so. I, I don't take off after my mother and, and her religious non-beliefs, I suppose, but rather um, it formed ideas of my own and with the help of others and my grandmother, my mother's mother, was very spiritually inclined, and she was an anthroposophist. Anthroposophy is a movement that's better known in Europe. It was an offshoot of the Theosophical Society, and a fellow who worked with the Theosophical Society, Rudolf Steiner, began his own school of thought, as it were, called Anthroposophy, or Man's Wisdom. And it's sort of a blend of Eastern mysticism, Christian mysticism, it's an amalgamation of a lot of things. But he was also a very practical man and developed things on areas of endeavor that are still in place today, uh, one being biodynamic farming, which is organic farming, another being Waldorf schools, which is a pedagogical system. But he was very influential for my grandmother, partly for me, but not so much. But my grandmother was very influential for me in terms of addressing issues of the spirit. How did you end up living that out? Well, in music, in part, presently attending Quaker meetings, I see silence as well as music as both communicating 
deeply to ourselves personally as well as deeply with others. So I see no difference in terms of the sounds of music, the extraordinary form of communication that music represents, and the extraordinary form of communication that silence presents. There's a palpable presence in a room, in a silent worship, in a Quaker meeting in which many are gathered in silence to contemplate and to open their hearts to what they see as divine in themselves as well as in others and in the world around them. It's palpable. I couldn't tell you exactly what music communicates. I can't tell you exactly what that silence does. So for me, they're both the same. Well, we better turn to your music or we'll use up an entire hour talking about all these wonderful facets of your life. The first song that you chose for your Song of the Soul is Auf meinen Lieben Gott, and I'm not sure that my German's great, by J.S. Bach. How does this fit into your Song of the Soul, Tim? This is a beautiful chorale, one of many, many chorales that Johann Sebastian Bach wrote. I very much love these chorales, the harmony of the voices. I find very, very appealing, especially if one were to hear them in a large building, a resonant space, which most churches are. But the harmonies themselves and the words direct me to the Spirit. In the harmonies, I'm directed to the Spirit in the sense that they reveal a, a sort of consonance and peace and clarity that resonates and reminds me of the harmonic series, something that we call the overtone series, or something that was called the chord of nature in the 18th century. And that is that every tone is a chord. Every single sound that we hear has other sounds in it. It's just that they're not readily audible to the ear or differentiated by our ears. Perhaps in the same way that elephants who communicate with each other communicate at a very low sound level that's not audible to our ears, so too do single notes have chords in them that our ears don't discern, but that defines the quality of those notes. The common practice era, which would have been the time that Bach was writing his music, their sense of harmony, I think, is very closely related to the harmonic series. Because of that consonance and that harmony, I'm reminded of things seen and things invisible. And then the texts, of course, bring me to a sense of spirit and greatness that extends beyond, well beyond my own personal orbit. Let's listen here to Tim's first song of his Song of the Soul, Auf meinen Leiben Gott by Bach. Performed in this case by the Hilliard Singers, or the Hilliard Ensemble, which is a four-person choral group based in England.
What has been the division of your life, Tim, between classical music and non-classical music? I think there might be a tendency as a music professor to emphasize real heavily the formal classical type of music instead of popular or other music of your life. I see no division at all. As I also teach at the university here in Wisconsin, I teach world music, and I see no division between various music genres within my own culture, as well as no difference in terms of their emotional and spiritual and communicative content with our own culture's music and other cultures' music. It's interesting that in my studies in the field of ethnomusicology, or world music, that I've found, and that it's a well-known tenant in the field, that cultures all over the world see music and its original origins as being a gift from a spiritual source, a gift from the gods in one way or other, given in order to assist humans through their lives. This we know because all the origin stories around the world point to that source being a spiritual source for the music, and music exists in ritual throughout the world, and it often forms the core of a ritual. These ideas were put forth by a fellow named Natal after studying, and they've become pretty much a tenant in the field of world music. So I don't see a difference ultimately in any music. It's all extraordinary form of communicating, both within ourselves as to others as well, and to that same place as others, as well as to a spirit world. So I enjoy all kinds of music. In fact, I've been very much enjoying quite a bit of the rock and roll that my son plays on the car as we drive around on various family errands. Uh, I've enjoyed that as well. I think if I saw any difference or had say anything that was different between these various types of music, it would be some have either the benefit, one might say, and conversely, it could be a disadvantage of being more thoroughly thought through than other types of music. And that doesn't mean that one would be necessarily better or more effective than the other, but there are various layers of complexity. Simplicity and straightforwardness can be something that's quite complex, and complexity can be something quite simple. So I, I said there is differences there, but not in terms of what music expresses or how effectively it does that for me personally. I think this next song is a song that you listened to growing up, but it's also a song that your son listens to. Why did you include Imagine by John Lennon in your Song of the Soul? Well, it's a beautiful song in terms of its texture and melody and accompaniment and the, the overall texture or fabric of the music. And the text is pointing to something that we can imagine within ourselves and for others and with others to somehow work to idealize uh, a better place for the world around us. Were you a Beatles or a John Lennon fan coming up? Yeah, very much so. Very much so a Beatles fan. In fact, I remember seeing him first appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, which sort of dates me, but, you know, I wasn't one of those screaming girl fans, but I was a fan, and the girls that were screaming about them, I was screaming about the girls, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoyed the Beatles very much. Let's listen here to Imagine by John Lennon. Thank you. 
I think next we'll move back to a classical piece. This is a piece written by Arthur Foote, and it's called Night Piece. Why did you choose this one for your Song of the Soul, Tim? For a variety of reasons, this piece is really close to my heart. The piece, the performance, the initial way that this work came to me was that it's a recording of a performance by my flute teacher, Maurice Sharp, who was a great mentor and kind of a fatherly figure in many ways to me. And certainly we shared a love for music and for the flute together. And then he was so willing and generous to share so much of his experience with me when I was a young man. And so in that sense, anytime I hear Maurice Sharp play the flute, all those sorts of feelings are conjured up for me. I think also this piece was a favorite of Maurice Sharp's. He never really explained to me why, but I also know that although I did not attend his funeral, it was played at his funeral. We did speak often on the works by a fellow named Lauren Isley, who is a anthropologist, archaeologist type, who speculates quite a bit about things infinite in the universe. Mr. Sharp would always ask me, what did I think of this particular book or that? And he would often look at me and say, 
yeah, those sorts of things really fill me with awe. And I was really humbled by that. He was a man in his mid-60s at that time, and I was a young boy between 14 and 22 was the, the range of time that I studied with him on and off. He was sharing with me deeply personal things, and I think that the night piece, in a sense, as with this solo flute line and a chordal accompaniment in the strings, sort of a mellifluous accompaniment in the four or five strings, kind of represents a sort of a, a feeling of isolation that we can have as individuals in the night. It also reminds me of a poem by Gary Snyder called True Night, in which a husband runs out of the house to chase away some raccoons, and after the raccoons are gone, he looks up at the stars and feels, with the wind blowing through his hair, like a sea anemone in an ocean, and that senses something much greater than himself, something that he's a part of, but he's also afraid of it and says, I can't, I can't bear this feeling of the night for too long before I have to return to those things and people that I love. And I think that's a lot of what that represents to me and what Maurice Sharp represented to me, a source of love and returning to something that we love and that sense of isolation that we can all feel as humans. And through that quality of love, we bridge that gap. You mentioned that Maurice Sharp was kind of a fatherly figure, mentor for you. What did your family consist of? You had your mother there, you've mentioned. Do you have siblings too? I have a twin brother, Anthony Lane, who's a violin maker living in California now. And I have an older sister, Valerie, who is living quite close to my brother. So when I go and visit them in California, I get a, sort of a two-for-one package. Yeah, I just grew up with my mom as the head of the household. My parents were divorced. My dad was really out of the picture. Well, with that in mind, we're going to listen to Night Peace. It's written by Arthur Foote, but it's performed by Tim's mentor, Maurice Sharp.
I guess with this next song, we'll allow the women to come into the picture here. Of course, I grew up each year hearing it on television, performed by Judy Garland. It's Over the Rainbow, but you have it performed here by Eva Cassidy. Have you been an Eva Cassidy fan for a long time? Yeah, as soon as I first heard her sing, which was probably about eight or nine years ago, I fell in love with her voice and the soulfulness of her voice and the immediacy and direct emotional quality of her singing. I also very much liked the way she reworked songs written by others. As an interpreter myself, and sometimes composer, but mainly interpreter of other people's compositions, the role of the interpreter is very, it's special. I mean, you you develop a special relationship with a piece of music, and you end up individualizing it. I think composers expect that, that a piece is reworked by a performer and relived and brought to life. As I often say to my students, as long as it's on a sheet of paper, it's not a piece of music. So I fell in love with her voice and her interpretations because they're so personalized and appropriate for the feelings, I think, that are expressed in the music that she sings. I picked Over the Rainbow, for one, because of her performance of it, which I had heard had been voted one of the top 100 pop songs of the 20th century by British pop fans. So I would definitely have my vote included in that. But I like the theme of the song, the idea somewhere over the rainbow, searching for something different, something better, perhaps, searching initially for something outside of oneself. In this case, Dorothy looking outside herself for something better than the home that she left. And in the end of The Wizard of Oz, it's a theme of return and the idea that what she was searching for was deeply within herself. And I think this is something that's come up in Quaker meeting as well, that as we search and extend ourselves deeply inward, it's through that that we deeply connect with others and that the inward and outward always seem to be in balance. And that as we look within ourselves for those things, we find them in others. And as we find them in others, we're inspired to look for them within ourselves. So that's why I like this song. Well, let's take a trip over the rainbow. Here, sung by Eva Cassidy.
Eva really does do an amazing job with that song, really just putting more and more soul into it. The next one you've chosen is from your Motown days. Maybe those days continue, for all I know. It's by Marvin Gaye, and it's called Too Busy Thinking About My Baby. How old were you when this became one of your specials? I was 12, so it was early adolescence. I remember getting up quite early in the mornings before school, and delivering a very extensive paper route in Chicago. And I would prop up my radio that I had bought with my paper route money and listen to uh, WGRT, Super Soul Radio. And Marvin Gaye's song was my favorite. 
too busy thinking about my baby. I love the song because it was so melodic and his voice is so sort of soft and poignant at the same time, soft in quality. And the theme was one about falling in love and just talking about finding a, a partner. And so th these were things that were part of the theme of my life at that time as well. So whenever I return to it, I remember a certain quality of it just returns me to that time. I think also, as the paper route did, the song and that time in my life is a time when I started sort of maybe individualizing a little bit more within the family. And I think looking back, that may have been a start for that process as well. Well, hopefully you're not too busy thinking about your baby to listen to Too Busy Thinking About My Baby by Marvin Gaye. guessed him that I should have known that the Beatles and particularly Lennon would rate high in your musical experience because you have a second song by Lennon on your Song of the Soul. 
This is Beautiful Boy, Darling Boy, by John Lennon. Do you remember where you were when you heard that John Lennon was shot? I do, actually. I remember the evening it coming on the news late that night. It was a Monday night, if I remember correctly. I was in college, undergrad at the time. I lived in an Italian neighborhood when I was attending the Cleveland Institute of Music, and I went down from my apartment to the neighborhood bakery, and people were just stunned by it. They were talking about it, but with very few words, and people were just stunned and couldn't believe that something like that could happen. And why did you pick out this song? Well, I was reminded of this song and with my son, who bought Lennon Legend CD collection, and we were listening to it on a camping trip, and it came on. It was the first time I remember hearing it. I probably heard it back earlier in my life, but it's the first time I remember hearing it and really thinking about the words. There I was with my son, who I would sing or try to express the same feelings the song does in many, many ways in my life. And also, in a sense, a sense of loss listening to it, and that those words weren't readily expressed to me at that age or earlier. In part, they were, but could have used more of it. I suppose we all could have. Also, to me, it's the most beautiful message, I think, that we can give each other, that we will help each other whether it's a child or someone our own age or someone older, will help each other to feel safe and to be loved and to know that they are very, very deeply loved. How many children do you have, Tim? Well, I have three. Alec, my son, is 13, and my two girls, Anna and Mara, are both 10. I hope the message of Darling Boy also, they know, extends, of course, to all genders and uh you know, I try and live that out with my kids very, very much so, as well as with my spouse and my relatives and those friends that I make and care about. This is Beautiful Boy, Darling Boy by John Lennon. It's a lie. 
last lection, we're going to go off into Italian, which I don't speak. I know how to say ciao, and so I think that this next thing is pronounced ciccone, or ciccona, or something, for solo violin and four voices. It's another Bach piece. Is it part of a larger work? Yeah, the ciccone is, or in Italian, ciccona, is a very, very famous movement from Bach's solo partita number two for violin. In this particular version, it's been researched by a German musicologist who proposes that when Bach wrote this, he wrote this as a memorial to the death of his first wife, and that what forms the ground or the base of the Chacon, the solo violin movement, are actually a series of chorales that deal with his Christian faith and the passage of life, and the passage of life to, you know, an afterlife, and to his faith in Christ. So she proposes that these series of chorales and themes form the basis for the writing or composition of the chorale. In a sense, then, what we get through the chaconne for solo violin is the improvisation, as it were, above those hidden texts and harmonies. And in this performance, we hear them put back together. Now, whether or not that's really documentable, that that was what Bach thought, for me, is neither here nor there, in that it does reveal the harmonies in the piece and, again, points me to the common practice era and those things that are both with us and beyond us in terms of physical and spiritual qualities in life. You mentioned, Tim, that your brother makes violins. Did you make music as a family growing up? No, actually... My brother started out when we both moved to Cleveland. Our family moved to Cleveland when we were 13. I started on the flute, and my brother started on the trumpet. My mother never played a musical instrument, and my sister is a very good artist. But my grandmother, again, on my mother's side, was a pianist and had actually trained to be a concert pianist in Europe as an accompanist for song leader. Really, I suppose my first and you know, most ongoing musical relationship to a family member was through my grandmother. She would play every day, just about every day, even as a retired person who never had a career in music. She would soak her hands in hot paraffin or melt the paraffin, and then once it cooled off, put her hands in it so that she could play, and it would help relieve her arthritis pain. And then, of course, clean off the paraffin and play the piano every evening after dinner or right before. And she would pull out song repertoire, mostly 19th century song repertoire, and sing the words as she played with the piano. And as many 
others have heard, and I did as well with my grandmother, there was many things physically, in a sense, that she couldn't do on the piano anymore, and certainly with her voice. But what you heard was the shape and the spirit of that composition communicated very, very directly and essentially. And so my grandmother was a big musical influence on us. And my brother makes violins, actually, because of her influence. He was a graduate, undergrad degree in German and anthropology, but didn't really want to go on in either. And she sent him an article about a violin-making school in Chicago, and he decided he'd give that a try. And since then, he's made violins ever since. So for Tim's final song in his Song of the Soul, we'll listen to Chicon for Solo Violin and Four Voices by Bach.
I love the variety of music that you brought here today, Tim, from classical chorale to popular music. It's such a rich heritage. And the thought that music is like silence and that silence is like music, I experience as true. Thanks for sharing your music with me today, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for your show. And I hope that people find that the words and the music speaks to them as well. You've been listening to a Song of the Soul interview with Tim Lane, a teacher in the music department at UW-Eau Claire. You can listen again to this program via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you also find a list of music and other information about my guests. Song of the Soul is produced by Mark Helpsmeet. If you'd like to share your Song of the Soul with the listeners of WHYS-FM Radio, please contact me via my email address, helpsmeet at usa.net. That's H-E-L-P-S-M-E-E-T at usa.net. And please join me Sundays at 11 a.m. for Song of the Soul. You can